This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the brand new series of Hidden Histories in partnership with the Arts and Humanities Research Council and the BBC's prestigious New Generation Thinkers Scheme. Since 2010, the New Generations Thinker Scheme has developed a new generation of 100 academics who can bring the best of university research and scholarly ideas to a broad audience through the media and public engagement. It's a chance for early career researchers to cultivate the skills to communicate their research findings to those outside the academic community. I am thrilled to be able to invite a selection of New Generation Thinkers to discuss their research on the podcast. The guests on this series of Hidden Histories discuss a multitude of fascinating topics, from famine relief over the last two centuries to the dark side of the Italian Renaissance. There is more information on the New Generation Thinker Scheme on the Arts and Humanities Research Council webpage, detailing events, programmes and reading material relating to the scheme and the NGT's research. I'll link all of this in the show notes, but in the meantime, I hope you enjoy this special series. Michael Talbot, welcome to Hidden Histories. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here virtually. So we're going to talk about the Ottoman naval powers of the 17th and 18th centuries. So firstly, what constituted the Ottoman Empire? How expansive was it? And when would you say it was at its most powerful? So even in the period that, that we're going to be talking about today, the empire's borders are moving So just to give you a kind of background, in the 16th century, so kind of like from the 1510s onwards, the empire expands dramatically. It moves from being primarily an Anatolian, so that's modern Turkey, and Balkan empire into the Middle East. So it conquers the Levant and large parts of North Africa and parts of Arabia too. So it's undergone a massive change in the 16th century, the repercussions of which are still being dealt with in the 17th century. So it's expanded a lot. It's still expanding in the 17th century, but on a much slower rate. In terms of its its height in the period that we're talking about, it reaches its territorial height by some measures in the 1680s. So in 1683, the empire goes about trying to expand its territory into Europe and besieges the city of Vienna, which was a a massive deal at the time, obviously. And this really sees the empire at its height, I guess. So it stretches from Hungary in the west to the borders of Iran in the east, the top of the Black Sea, the Crimea in the north, all the way down to East Africa and Arabia in the south. So it's a really huge, diverse territory. And these borders then will continue to change in the period that we're talking about. 
And so even though we're going to be talking about the 17th and 18th century, one of the largest Ottoman naval incursions happened in the 16th century, around the time you're saying that there was further expansion. So this was the Battle of Lepanto, which, am I right in saying that was a massive Ottoman loss? It was. Well, I mean, it's definitely a big defeat. The way that it's spun in the different historical perspectives is different. So from the Ottoman perspective, it was a defeat, but it wasn't the biggest thing that's ever happened to them. They rebuild their fleet a few years later and make it even bigger, basically. Whereas, of course, from the other side, from the Holy League side, which is Spain and Venice and and other Christian powers, this marks a turning point. It's the first time that they're able to really deal the Ottomans a blow at sea. And this is part of a game changer in, in warfare that starts to see the Ottomans on the back foot on land and on sea. So it's all about perspective as to how big the defeat was. But yeah, it's definitely a defeat. So do you think that that defeat changed how the course of Ottoman power for the next two centuries? Or do you think that that would be a little too far? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think it would be pushing it. I mean, it, it definitely represents a, a game changer in terms of mindset from the Europeans. Now we know we can beat them. But the Ottomans remain a, a pretty significant naval power. What does start to change, though, is, is their sort of their focus. So North African Ottoman territories in the 16th century, so that's like Algeria, Tunis and Tripoli and Libya, start to become more and more autonomous and basically eventually de facto independent. And the Ottomans start to make more use of these allied states, if you like, as their naval warfare in parts of the Mediterranean. So rather than sending out the imperial fleet, they'll make use of the fleet from Algiers or the fleet from Tripoli. So there is a bit of a change in terms of strategy, definitely. Um, So what did the Mediterranean look like in the 17th and 18th century? Was it an active trade route or was it a very contested space? It's a bit of both. The Ottomans in the 17th century and the 18th century really start to expand their commercial networks. So they start to um, allow traders from other European countries to come and trade with the Ottoman realms for the first time. So in the 16th century, the main partner is France. At the end of the 16th century, England joins and then we get Holland. And then eventually in the 18th century, we get people like Sicily and Spain and Denmark and so forth. So it's definitely a commercial area, not just in terms of international trade, but also internal Ottoman trade. If we think about the Eastern Mediterranean, that's a major transport route between the Balkans and Anatolia and the Middle East and North Africa. So it's hugely important. If we look towards the west of the Mediterranean, that's much more of a contested space where we have the North African states of um, Algiers, Tripoli and Tunis very often engaged in warfare against powers like Spain. So there's much more fighting, I guess, that goes on a regular basis in the west of the Mediterranean compared to the east. And because any active commercial naval space always attracts pirates, who were the various pirates that sailed the Med and threatened Ottoman trade? Because obviously there were there were pirates from multiple different countries, wasn't there? Absolutely. And I, I guess part of the issue is who, who are we defining as a pirate here? Because one, one country's pirate is another country's sort of mercantile expansionist method. I don't know. Um, but um, the, the Ottoman mercantile routes are basically threatened by a few different actors. We have sort of state-run actors. So we have corsairs that come from countries like um, Spain or Malta, Um, that are engaged in constant low-level warfare against the Ottomans for much of the 17th and 18th centuries. So they're they're one source of problems. Um, We also have domestic piracy, Um, so particularly coming from the Peloponnese, that's now southern Greece, 
um, and sometimes um, parts, other parts in the Adriatic and the Middle East, um, there are local pirates who essentially are, are seaborne bandits who, for various reasons, usually poverty, take to the waters to try and pick out some of the, the riches from commerce. But then a new threat emerges for the Ottomans in the late 17th and the 18th centuries with the arrival of British and French privateers. So for the British and French, this is a legitimate form of warfare. They're targeting each other's navies to try and knock them out of the war and to try and gain prizes and so forth. But a lot of Ottoman commerce in the 18th century relies on English and French shipping to move their goods around. So when an English ship attacks a French ship in the eastern Mediterranean, they're probably not attacking French goods or French people. They're probably attacking Ottomans and Ottoman goods on board that French ship. So although that's not technically piracy, if you're British or French, for the Ottomans, that definitely becomes a major piratical threat against their commerce. So just going into a little bit more about who the Corsairs were, were they, so something in, in my period, we had something called the companies, which were effectively mercenary soldiers who just fought on their own terms and they formed bands together and then they raided up and down France. Is that the sort of the same thing as what a Corsair was, but on the sea? So it was effectively lawless groups. They're not really lawless because, well, there's different kinds of Corsairs. And again, the terminology that we use here is really tricky. In in the Ottoman Turkish language, there's one word to describe all these different kinds of activities, Korsan, which could be translated as pirate or Corsair, depending on the context. So it's difficult to differentiate. But for the Corsairs that, that we talk about in the Mediterranean, for the most part, they're not illegal pirates. They're acting with the blessing of one state or another. So we have fleets going out from Ottoman North African ports who are engaging in corsairing as a legitimate form of warfare, a kind of commercial warfare against their rivals. And similarly, from places like Spain, we also have Spanish ships coming out as corsairs to do the same from the other side. So this is kind of like part and parcel of living in the Western and sometimes the Eastern Mediterranean, that these these activities happen. But it's, it's when you have this disrupting factor of the British and French privateers that things become a bit more complicated because they are attacking an ally, essentially. They're meant to be friends with the Ottomans, but they're attacking their shipping, whereas with the Spanish versus the North Africans, they're both enemies and they know it. So corsairing is a legitimate form of warfare for much of the period that we're talking about, as opposed to more kind of rogue piratical activities. And... Did pirates only attack merchant vessels or did they also move towards land and attack Ottoman ports as well? Oh, yeah, definitely. We have raids against ports on both sides, really. I mean, um, it's important sometimes for in terms of provisions. When a ship's been at sea for a long time and they're running out of provisions, they might raid an Ottoman port. And in, in this highlights for the Ottoman state, particularly in the 18th century, problems with things like fortifications. They find that some of their ports, particularly in, in provincial areas like maybe Palestine or Syria, aren't as well defended as they might be. Um, and this then galvanises the Ottomans into a, a period of fortification building to better defend their ports. But other kinds of raiding activities have other aims. So if we if we go back to the Western Mediterranean, to North Africa and Iberia, often the raids are to do with slaving. 
um, particularly in the 17th century. And this isn't obviously this isn't kind of the slaving that we're used to from the Atlantic slave trade. Very often it's ransom slavery, but sometimes it is slavery for use in, in industrial or domestic settings. So there's different kinds of raids, but yeah, the land is not immune to this these various forms of maritime warfare. And you talk about the slave trade and slave and slaves, but um, what sort of goods were pirates particularly attracted to, or was it a case a total case of free for all? Was it was it ships? Uh, what sort of things were, uh, I guess, more vulnerable when they were at sea? It depends on on the period, I guess, as to what's sort of circling around in the Mediterranean. In the 18th century, one of the, the most important goods that's moving around in terms of non-consumables, I guess, is, is textiles. So the Mediterranean becomes this conduit between sort of like the silks of the Ottoman Empire and Iran moving across to Western Europe, who in turn are bringing their, their cloth goods. So if you land a, a nice Dutch uh, or French or English ship full of textiles, then your quid's in. But also it's about particularly in times of famine, which is a big issue in parts of the 17th and 18th century across the Mediterranean, consumables can be your biggest target. So there's some very lucrative trade routes between North Africa and Anatolia in the Balkans that deal in things like rice and coffee and wheat. And these can be seized and then sold on in other markets that are maybe willing to pay a higher price because of food shortages. So there's all different sorts of goods that could be targeted. And there's also, particularly um, from the when the Western Europeans start to become active in the Mediterranean, they find lots of very vulnerable convoys going across the Mediterranean, particularly Muslim convoys that are making their way by sea to get to Mecca and Medina for pilgrims going on the Hajj, and also Christian pilgrims coming from all parts of the Mediterranean to go to the Holy Land. So there's loads of opportunities for both taking goods and taking goods off of vulnerable people throughout this period. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. 
If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. So privateers in particular, were you say, were the main threat. How did these vessels, these, were they galleys? I, I don't know if they had moved on from the, the galley ship by this point. How did they protect themselves when they were sailing across the Mediterranean from these sorts of attacks? We do have some galleys around still in the, the 17th, 18th century. But yeah, the Ottomans are definitely moving, as with everyone else, towards sails, purely sails. How do they protect themselves? Well, for many Ottoman ships, they have to rely on the state to protect them. Then, you know, there may be some firearms on board, some handguns and swords and things like that. But as the problems increase in the 18th century in terms of the violence at sea, what the Ottoman state starts to do is to institute a number of maritime patrols, basically. So they designate anywhere between sort of like five to a dozen or more ships at any one time to do tours around the Mediterranean and the Black Sea and other Ottoman seas basically on the lookout for piracy or other criminal activities and to reassure local trades that they can go about their business peacefully. Kind of like a coast guard type. Kind of like a coast guard, yeah. So this is a big change in the role for the Ottoman navy, which in the earlier periods, in the 16th and the first part of the 17th century, it was very much an offensive force going out there and taking the fight to their enemies. Now in the later 17th and the 18th centuries, it's much more about defence and protection. And this is particularly problematic because when the Western Europeans come into the Mediterranean in the 17th and 18th centuries, they are coming armed. So European merchantmen, particularly from France, Britain and Holland, you know, these these tend to be ships that are armed with cannons um, that are capable of defending themselves, but which also means that they can engage in a little bit of piracy or privateering if they want to or if the opportunity arises. So we kind of see a, a, a sort of an arms race, I guess, in the Mediterranean in the 18th century, a much more militarised space than it had been previously by the, the incursions and the growing presence of Western European ships there that tend to be more heavily armed and willing to use violence. That's really interesting, thinking of it in that respect, this idea of land and sea as two separate spaces where one is very clearly designated by borders and border control and territory. And then sea is almost, at this point, would you say that it's almost considered as free-for-all space? Or is this when things like borders and territory started to come into play? Yeah, definitely. I mean, this was actually the thing that really got me into this topic. I've started to find in, in the Ottoman documents, and particularly documents that they were sending to France and Britain, that they did try and implement essentially a border regime at sea. Now, the sea, as we know, even in our modern age, is difficult to police as we would on land. You know, you can't erect a, bo- a, a wall down the middle of the ocean, although I'm sure some people would like to try. Yeah. <laughs> but in this period, it's more about law and which law is in effect in any given space. Now, there had been an understanding in the Mediterranean and in other seas that once you're out in the open ocean, away from land, that's kind of like international waters, we would call it today, where it's not that there is no law, but it's not the law of any particular state. 
What the Ottomans try to do to respond to their various threats at sea in the late 17th and 18th century is they come up with this legal innovation that in times of crisis they will draw a temporary line down the Mediterranean, kind of from the bottom tip of Greece to to um, North Africa, kind of like the border between Libya and Egypt today, beyond which point violence at sea is forbidden and anyone who commits violence at sea against Ottoman subjects will be subject to Ottoman law. So they do try and implement a, a kind of a space that makes the sea more like the land, which is a really fascinating idea and is a, a bit controversial because the Europeans say, well, no, we're, we're at sea. How do we know when this border starts or end? How do we know when we've crossed this line or not? Um, and who are you to say what we can or can't do out on the open waters? But it's an interesting tactic. So you think the Europeans sort of had this idea that the that the water was by was obtained via conquest rather than law. Yeah, it's partly to do with who's you know if we're able to to express ourselves through violence and and submit this area to force, then you can't really tell us what to do. That's part of it. But then it goes back to what we were talking before about trade. The Ottomans are able to say, well, if you don't respect our law at sea and you don't respect our merchants at sea, why should we respect your merchants? coming to our empire? Why should we continue to offer them protection? Why shouldn't we let our subjects attack them? So there's kind of like a balance here that the Europeans eventually have to find that they have to be a bit more subtle. If they're going to attack each other, they need to make sure they are attacking each other and not Ottomans and that they realise that there are potential repercussions on land as well at sea if they don't abide by this new Ottoman legal regime. And how exactly were borders and territory marked out and monitored and how were European powers or European pirates supposed to understand where those borders were? I mean this is the big problem. <laughs> the, 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 the Mediterranean is, a, is, a, is an interesting space in terms of there are quite a few islands in the Mediterranean right once you get to certain bits of it. So early on the Ottomans use a number of islands like in the Aegean as markers so they say right you can't commit violence beyond Andros the island of Andros. So everyone knows where Andros is. You can see it. That's not a, that's not a problem. It's when we get into kind of like the middle of the 18th century, the 1740s, when they institute this idea that the line actually exists down the middle of the sea, that we get into problems. Navigation on the open waters in the 1740s is still a really difficult affair. People still try and stay close to the coasts as much as they can when navigating. So it's it's a difficult thing to enforce. So what the Ottomans rely on are the testimonies of sailors and ships who have been assaulted. And these sailors and captains often go to the nearest Ottoman settlement um, to get a kind of a statement from a a Qadi, which is an Ottoman uh, Islamic judge, to attest that what they're saying is true. So they try and have a a kind of a legal process that it's not just a he said, she said type situation, and that they actually have legal proof that an altercation has taken place and that the law has been broken. So all of this is really quite, you know, in the in the space of a century, there's a massive shift to what how the Ottomans behaved at sea to if prior to the Battle of Lepanto to to now. How do you think that Ottoman policy affected imperial notions of territory going forward from this point? Did it go back to how it was before, or do you think that it advanced even further from this point? That's a really interesting question. I mean, the the empire has changed significantly by the 1740s compared to the time of Lepanto. I mean, the trouble is with Ottoman history is because it's one dynasty for 600 years or more, 
it's easy to kind of think of it as one big thing. But if we think about it in terms of English history, it's the difference between the early Elizabethan era and the mid-Georgian era. I think, sorry, my English history is rubbish, but that's roughly the kind of um, periods that we're talking about. So if you think about how much the English state has changed between the 1570s and the the 1740s, you can imagine similar processes have gone on in the Ottoman state. And whereas in the 16th century, they're still all about expansion where possible, by the 1740s, it's much more about consolidation and um, protecting the territory that they have. In part, this is a this is because expansion became more difficult, but also because the needs and demands of the state have changed. So that's why we see a differing approach to borders and to imperial notions of territory, that we have an empire, and it's still a pretty big empire in the 1740s. It's much more important to protect what we have than to maybe go about expanding it even more and causing ourselves more problems than we already have. And what about piracy? Did, was there a significant change after this territory was put in place? Was Ottoman trade less negatively affected or did piracy continue in quite a savage way? Yeah, unfortunately, I mean, this, this attempt uh, in the 1740s to, to create this maritime space is very unsuccessful. But there are also, you know, major repercussions for the British and the French. I mean, if, if we look at their, their their commercial figures of trade with the Ottomans in the 1740s, it's just a massive nosedive. So it's it's not good for anyone, really. But the trouble is that the 18th century is a, is a time of almost constant warfare between Britain and France. And their conflict with each other is expanding wherever they possibly can in the world. You know, we just think of there's something like the Seven Years' War that takes place on multiple continents and it only gets more intense. And so therefore the Ottomans are faced throughout the, the later 18th century, in the, again in the 1750s and then the 1770s, the 1780s and 90s, with British-French warfare that necessarily impacts their empire, their trades, and sees these privateering slash piratical acts. So they tried really hard to find a solution to the situation, but this was a series of events largely beyond their control. That was really interesting. Thank you. Um, where can where can we read a bit more about this or uh, hear more about it? Uh, where could you read more about it? Um, uh, I have some journal articles on this subject, and I'll happily give you the links to them. Yeah, we're going to link all of this to the um, individual podcast, so I'll make sure that that goes on there because um, I think this is a this is a fascinating subject. And um, Michael, are you on are you on Twitter or any sort of social media where people can keep an eye on your research and what you're up to? I am on Twitter. I must confess, I haven't been particularly active on there recently, but <laughs> okay. um, I will be returning there at some point. You've been quite busy, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a busy period for everyone, isn't it? But um, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, what else could you do? I have a, I have a, a show that was on um, BBC Radio 3 as part of the New Generation Thinkers scheme where I talk a little bit about some of these episodes. So you can have a listen to that too if you're not sick of the sound of my voice after listening to this. And you're also on the um, Netflix series, aren't you? The Ottomans. Yeah. Rise of Empire Ottoman. Yeah. That was it. That was it. I did watch an episode of that. I thought it was a drama and then suddenly it was interjected with like a talking head and I was like, oh, that's right. This is different. They needed to, they needed to interrupt <laughs> the drama with some dry historians. Yeah. That, that's still available on Netflix. Still, so that's actually quite a fun, a fun way to learn more about the Ottomans and the Ottoman Empire. It is fun. I mean, it's a, a completely different uh, period to what we've been talking about today. But there is an interesting maritime episode in in the conquest where... 
the Sultan, uh, Mehmed II, manages to move his fleet across the land to surprise his enemies. So have a watch of the show to, to see more about that. You couldn't make it up, really. I mean, it's basically just historical that. drama laid out for you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Michael. It was lovely to speak to you. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.